If you were to ask me where Spider-Man stops, the answer was normally the same one. The end of Volume 1 of The Amazing Spider-Man, which ran for over 35 years. The book closed out with a storyline called The Gathering of the Five, a terrible piece of work that didn't even have the decency to wrap up in Amazing Spider-Man, instead concluding in another comic. So Marvel essentially cancelled its flagship book with its flagship character for no really good reason. The series concluded with a shitty story in an unspecial issue number, 440, and was then relaunched in a pretty unspectacular way. Good job. The end of The Gathering of the Five is a hack job, bringing Norman Osborn back yet again and closing with him insane again, but believing he has won a final and decisive victory against Peter Parker. So, essentially, our Dan Slott recently closed his run. Slott borrowed a lot from the Burn Mackie reboot. Not all of it good. The ending of The Gathering of the Five was retold, slightly, in an issue of Spider-Girl, an offshoot of Spider-Man, where Peter Parker and his wife Mary Jane had a daughter. Frequently more faithful to the character than the core books, in my headcanon, this is the natural progression for Peter Parker. By following my headcanon timeline, I can comfortably ignore the horrible origin retelling of Chapter 1 and the equally horrible relaunch. Yeah it consigns the overall pretty good Joe Straczynski run to the dustbin of time, but it also lets us pretend some of the worst Straczynski stories never happened as well. I'm happy with that trade-off. However, when I was reading the Marvel Masterworks of Spider-Man again, thanks to Comixology sales, I was hit by how good an issue Amazing Spider-Man number 99 would have been as the end point. Now, no one feels that Steve Ditko deserves his credit as Spider-Man's father more than I. He clearly was putting his all into the book, and there are issues and stories where Ditko should have got top billing over Stan Lee. However, after disagreements with Stan, Ditko left with issue 38, and Stan carried on writing the book with other artists providing the plots. Unlike the Fantastic Four, which really suffered when its artist and guiding light Jack Kirby quit, Spider-Man carried on with barely a bump in the road. Peter became a tad more likeable and a bit better looking, but the book moved on, telling more Spider-Man stories and becoming a bestseller in the process. Now this means either Lee was doing more work than people give him credit for, or he was more invested in Spider-Man than some of his other characters. In conjunction with artists like John Romita, Gil Kane, Jim Mooney and others, Stan deepened the relationships between Peter and his supporting characters, introduced Mary Jane Watson, fleshed out Harry Osborn, revealed the identity of the Green Goblin, gave Peter a long-standing love interest in Gwen Stacy, and increased the soap opera quotient of the series tenfold. We as readers started buying the book for Peter and his ongoing life struggles, as much as we were in it for the Spider-Man action. New characters continued to be introduced, like the Kingpin, the Prowler and Silvermane, along with more forgettable characters like Man Mountain Marco. Stan also introduced more of a social consciousness to the stories, with the strip tackling more topical subjects such as student rights, civil liberties, political rallies and drug abuse. Sure, some sameness was slipping in, we didn't need to see Peter getting yet another cold that sapped his strength, and there were some hackneyed stories, memory loss for example, but by and large Spider-Man went from strength to strength. In many ways, the post-Ditko era is quintessential Spider-Man. This is who Spider-Man is, and what people picture when they think about the character. 
The core characters are Peter Parker, Mary Jane Watson, Gwen Stacy, Flash Thompson, Harry Osborn, Randy Robertson, J. Jonah Jameson and Robbie Robertson. Betty Brandt is still hanging around the Daily Bugle and May Parker is still around, as is Aunt Anna Watson, although they are both now living together rather than constantly berating Peter Parker. Peter is a college student living in the New York of the 60s with its thriving social scene and significant place in the world. His responsibilities as Spider-Man frequently get in the way of Peter's life, a life which includes being an honest student and part-time photographer. This is the era everyone tries to emulate when they write Spider-Man. Even when stacked up against the Lee Ditko run, my personal bible as far as comics are concerned, issue 50 through 98 of Amazing Spider-Man are damn good comics. This is why I think that on this particular reread, it hit me that Amazing Spider-Man 99 would have been such a good place to finish. Issue 100 is great, but let's be honest, it's a tad silly. After that, the book changes, in some ways for the better and others for the worst. The 70s are a dark, cynical decade, and ending Spider-Man here, the very early 70s, just before that aromatic 60s smell goes off a bit, seems just perfect to me. Amazing Spider-Man 99 was cover-dated August 1971 and has a cover by Gil Kane and Frank Giacoya. Spider-Man swings above the heads of the inmates taking over a prison, one of which holds a gun to the head of the warden. It's very Gil Kane, with two up-nostril shots and open-mouthed expressions, but as always with Kane, it's magnificently composed. It's lacking in background detail, though, which means that the top quarter of the left-hand side is blue, with very little else happening. A Day in the Life of, featuring Panic in the Prison, are the titles, implying Stanley couldn't decide which he preferred. This was written by The Man, with art by Kane and Gaia Koya and letters by Art Simek. The splash page is gorgeous. Beautifully laid out by Kane, it's a montage piece with Spider-Man on the left-hand side, looking a little off in that Gil Kane way, but nothing egregious. Peter and Gwen take centre stage, looking totes adorbs. Peter, in a blue polo neck and white jacket ensemble, tight brown slacks and tan boots, takes Gwen chin in his hands as if to kiss her as they walk. Gwen, looking dreamy in an orange figure-hugging polo neck, red skirt, yellow jacket and calf-high leather boots, looks at Peter adoringly. She clasps his hand, which is around her waist, and if they didn't win Comics Couple of 1971, it's only because that miserable bastard Jerry Conway stacked the deck. Gwen's hair is platinum blonde and her eyes are powder blue. The headband is present and correct. She's looking remarkably svelte for someone who has apparently just had twins. Honest, that's the last gag I will make at the expense of a little-known and rarely referred to story arc called Sin's Past, which few people even remember today. The splash also features an unknown fellow with a long 70s flick, picking at a guitar as if scoring Peter and Gwen's day. This is a pretty typical example of how Marvel rolled back in the day. This splash isn't dynamic in the traditional comic sense. There are no supervillains, no action, no sense of dread. It's a character piece, and the better for it. As readers, this is what we were here for. The Peter Parker relationship stuff. Sure, all Spider-Man was fun and all, but the characters were why we came back every month. This one you don't dare miss, runs some additional copy, although chances are you've already bought the comic if you're reading the splash page. Also featuring Spidey on TV, runs some more blurb. The story opens with little preamble.
Peter and Gwen have found each other again, we are told, and we go from the why or how they'd lost each other is irrelevant. Feeling like every other young couple in the world, Gwen and Peter stir into each other's eyes, completely ignorant of what's going on around them. They wander past strangers who look unenvious of their love. Posted stickers adorn the fences proclaiming VOTE and Marvel Mania International. The entire page centres around the idea that Peter is about to propose. He knows it. Gwen knows it. The reader knows it. He just doesn't actually go ahead and do it. Peter drops Gwen off at home and vows that Spider-Man isn't going to come between them ever again and that now he's got his personal life together, he needs a job so he can support Gwen properly when he pops the question. Everything about this opening page and a half signifies a major change in the life of Peter Parker, with the reader being teased that issue 100 will be a proposal. Norman Osborn had offered him a job previously, but Peter decides he can't ask Norman for it because of the annoying habit Norm has of turning into Spider-Man's arch-adversary, the Green Goblin. He decides instead to walk over to the Daily Bugle. In the dialogue, he says, I'll head there now, but when he arrives at the Bugle, he has changed clothes, now wearing a nice blue suit, striped shirt and orange tie. The tie is a sartorial no-no, Pete. A splash of colour with a black suit is okay, Orange and light blue look a little tacky. Still, this isn't GQ, and Peter is delighted to learn that Robbie Robertson has already lined up a job for him. Peter isn't down with this, and a great confrontation with Jonah Jameson ensues as Peter lays the law down. This job is to take photos at the city pen where there is a riot. The inmates are losing it and the warden is a hostage. Peter, not unreasonably, points out that this will be a dangerous gig. Spider-Man may be there, and Peter's done risking his life for peanuts. He wants proper dough and a staff job. Jonah is flabbergasted. Where's Peter grown this spine from? Scenes where Peter stood up to Jonah were always a joy, but this one is especially fun for having Robbie Robertson stood in the background smirking at Peter's sudden appearance of massive balls. Peter's gumption has always been there, but he's never needed a full-time paying gig before. Gwen is now his reason for being. Jonah capitulates to Peter's demands and a smiling Peter Parker heads out, looking forward to using his new mini camera for the first time. He dons his Spider-Man outfit and swings across town. Kane's panel work here is fluid and gorgeous, his anatomy credible and his depiction of New York realistic. Marvel comics always work best like this, the unreal Spider-Man swinging in a thoroughly recognisable environment. Spider-Man arrives at the prison and quickly gets the lay of the land. Encountering two lookout guards, Spider-Man webs them both up, and then one of them tells Spidey what he wants to know. He says they are only protesting the conditions they are held in, and that the ringleader, Turpo, has promised that he will get them their due. My research into this issue has people claim that this storyline was inspired by the Attica prison riots that took place in the Attica Correctional Facility in New York during September of 1971. However, this issue was on sale in May of 1971, which would make Stan a pretty good fortune teller. The coincidence is amazing, though, unless this was a social issue that was bubbling below the surface for a while before finally exploding. That, though, would imply Stan took his stories from the political issues of the day, and if we read Twitter, we all know that that's not true. Either way, this issue will have been on the stands in August, as the real events occurred in September, which shows how sometimes fiction can mirror reality in the most uncomfortable of ways. Spider-Man manages to make it into the prison and sensibly decides to stay in the shadows until he can determine where the blame lies. Typical of Peter and Stan, our hero wants to know all the facts before leaping in and, interestingly, doesn't just side with who the establishment would say are the bad guys. 
Spidey isn't sure of what's what here, wants to hear both sides before forming an opinion. You can tell he wasn't raised on Twitter. He makes his way to the warden's office where he learns that Turpo is actually a scumbag who is playing the cops off against the criminals. The criminals do want better conditions, but Turpo is using that as cover for his own escape. When the inmates find out, they feel betrayed by Turpo and side with Spider-Man as he takes Turpo and his men out in seconds. With that taken care of, the warden promises to listen to the inmates' demands and the riot is called off. It's all a little pat, to be honest, but it does show Marvel's tendency to at least try and tackle subjects like this in its stories. The subject of prison conditions did end up being a big issue, and the solution, as always in real life, were far more complicated than it was portrayed in this comic book story. Still, let's marvel at Stan's ability to tell this story and wrap it up in 12 pages. It never feels rushed or badly paced, it all unfolds at a reasonable clip, and the action is understated, the story instead preferring to preach that communication and negotiation is key, rather than fisticuffs and bullheadedness. Another way Marvel scored over some of its competition was these shades of grey that the protagonist would frequently operate under. On his way back to the Bugle, Spider-Man is yelled at from a window by the host of a late-night talk show. Again, my research has led me to believe that this is supposed to be Johnny Carson, who means very little to me, but apparently hosted something called The Tonight Show, live from New York at this time. It was a big deal. Carson wants Spidey to appear on that night show to talk about the riot whilst it's still current. He tries to stiff Spider-Man out of money for his appearance, promising that it may make New York love ya. But instead, Peter is Peter and says he needs bread, man. Carson promises to pay the going rate, whatever the hell that is. Spidey heads back to the bugle and after developing the film, Peter gives Jonah the photos. His little ploy backfires though as being on staff means he can't be paid until Friday. This is a great example of Parker luck. It's not brought on by his own stupidity or his own fault. It's just the way things are for a staffer. Peter is now perturbed that he won't be able to take Gwen out for the night. He then swings back over to 30 Rockefeller Plaza, which, according to Wikipedia, was where The Tonight Show was filmed at this time. Once on Earth, Spider-Man practically does a PSA about the state of correctional facilities and how they breed more crime than they cure. Politics, comics, enough said. Alas, before Spider-Man can be paid, the police arrive because Spider-Man is still wanted in connection with the death of George Stacey, a wonderful piece of continuity. He takes off, annoyed that he didn't get paid. What the hell's he going to tell Gwen? Turns out Gwen isn't too bothered. She's got planned a naughty night in, just her and Peter. Gwen clearly has sex on her mind, which pisses all over since... Oh, nope! Stop it! Said it, I wouldn't mention it again. I did it once before and I think I got away with it. But, you know, call it a day. You can see why I would think this was a great end point for the series if you go and read it yourself. Peter makes a number of vows here. One, to not let Spider-Man get in the way of relationships ever again. Two, he makes a conscious effort to get a paying job, albeit a part-time one to allow him time to study, and he's very definitely about to propose to Gwen, and she knows it, and is clearly about to say yes. This is a Peter Parker that has grown up, sorted himself out, and decided what he wants. Compare this to the Peter Parker of the post-brand-new-day stories, a man who can't pick out his own underwear without help. This is also the best place for Peter to tell Gwen about being Spider-Man and seeing how that conversation goes. Imagine an alternate universe where Stan had done that and truly taken the strip in a new and uncharted direction. The superhero girlfriend who knows the secret and accepts it. 
Stan arguably did too good a job with Peter and Gwen, with numerous writers and artists believing that the next logical step for the characters was marriage. I wouldn't quite go that far. Peter isn't particularly financially solvent at this point, although Gwen has her own place and doesn't seem to be short of money given that she doesn't have a job. Granted, her father was just killed in the line of duty, which perhaps, on a purely mercenary level, meant a massive payout for Miss Stacy. Either way, neither one of them know what they want to do after they leave ESU, but an engagement with them setting up plans for the future really could have taken the strip in new and uncharted directions. A fine place to end, as the future for Gwen and Peter was unwritten in the minds of the readers. If Stan had all this in mind, well, it's still locked in, though. He would only write one more issue of Amazing before leaving the writing to others. He would return for another stint from issue 105 to 110, but the gap meant that all the great work he did in this issue was forgotten. Instead, Stan introduces a slight rift between Peter and Gwen over her interest in Flash Thompson, a plot that reveals it's purely platonic and she's trying to help Flash get over some of his problems from being in Nam. Mary Jane keeps hurling herself at Peter with all the subtlety of a boulder rolling down a mountain about to crush a small town. Peter was back to being a freelancer within a few months, this development of being a staff photographer being a casualty of Stan's rather lax memory and differing writers like Roy Thomas and Jerry Conway. His non-proposal to Gwen was also really mentioned going forward. The scuppers are put on it full-time in issue 100 when, in trying to rid himself of his powers, Peter grows two extra arms. It's mentioned just once more before he, Gwen and Jonah trot off to the hidden land to pal around with Kazar before being quietly dropped. Again, Gwen looked pretty good in a two-piece bikini, considering she just had twi- No! Stop it! Stop it. Stop it. The Peter Parker scene in this issue is a culmination of all the life experience he's had since Amazing Fantasy 15. No longer a gawky teenager, he's a man with responsibilities and ready to accept the next chapter of his life. Sadly, for the character, that would be more regression than progression. But here, in this one moment... We are treated to the tantalising idea that our hero, the hero that could be you, had grown up. Just like we all did. In the annals of television history, there are TV shows and characters that changed our culture and helped define generations. These are not those shows. It's time to close up the bar, leave the war, and quit your yuppie whining so you can step on board the Enterprise D, run alongside the Hoff, stop time with your fingers, and introduce your family to the voice input child identikit. Because this summer, Pop Culture Affidavit is taking you to the depths of 80s and 90s television with... It came from syndication! For seven weeks, I'll be taking a look at a variety of syndicated TV genres, from the lauded science fiction of Star Trek The Next Generation to the... This was a show? Of small wonder. Along the way, we'll battle with the Thundercats, run through the funhouse, give thumbs up at the movies, and have a very current affair. Pop Culture Affidavit presents... 
It came from syndication! Coming July 11th to popcultureaffidavit.com and twotruefreaks.com. Hello, everybody. Just as I was putting this episode to bed, news broke of the death of Spider-Man co-creator Steve Ditko. Um, As I said in the episode that you've just heard, no one believes Ditko deserves a a co-creator credit on Spider-Man more than I do. I think it's very fair to say that when we look at the other stuff in the early Marvel Comics publishing history. The material that Stan Lee worked on with Jack Kirby and Dick Ehrs and the other early creators at Marvel. Ditko's stuff stood apart. This is not um, to disparage the work of the other creators, nor to disparage the work of Stan Lee. If you've ever listened to me in any level, you know that I'm not somebody who bigs Ditko up at the expense of Lee, but nor do I swear on the the Bible of Stan at the expense of Steve. Spider-Man was very definitely a collaboration between the two gentlemen. Spider-Man may have been an original idea by Stan, but the version that saw print was very much Ditko's beating heart. I first discovered the Lee Ditko Spider-Man stuff in a myriad of different places. One of the things that is perhaps unique to my discovering of comics and discovering of the character is that I, I didn't really come into it from any specific era. When I started reading the US editions of, of The Amazing Spider-Man, Roger Stern, had just come on board. I managed to pick up the last couple of issues of Denny O'Neill's run and Stern was writing Spectacular. Then Spectacular, he went over from Spectacular, sorry, to Amazing. So I was getting the modern day interpretation of Spider-Man in conjunction with the British reprints, which were maybe a year or so behind at that point, but still relatively modern stuff. But at the time all of this was happening, Marvel Tales... Uh, under the auspices, I believe, of Tom DeFalco, who came up with this idea, had decided to go back to the very beginning and start reprinting Amazing Spider-Man with Amazing Fantasy 15 and then going into Amazing Spider-Man 1 and representing it monthly to give modern, then modern-day readers, as close as an experience as they could to the experience that the 1960s readers had. In addition, my my dad uh, also had boxes and boxes of old Mighty World of Marvels and Spider-Man comics weeklies. So basically my introduction to Spider-Man was from all over the place. I saw the character change grow. I, I would read stories from the Lee Ditko era, the Lee Romita era, the Stern Romita Jr. era, the Denny O'Neill era the Marv Wolfman stuff, all of that I was kind of digesting at the same time. And yet nothing really affected me as much 
as the early stories. Stan Lee, on point with the scripting of Spider-Man, I think it's fair to say, of all the early Marvel strips, Spider-Man is the one that seems the most fully formed from the get-go. You know, there's a couple of pots, holes, potholes in the in the road. You know, the, the terrible tinker story with the aliens doesn't feel like a Spider-Man story as we would come to know it. And some of the early issues that have two stories per issue haven't quite refined what the character is going to be yet. But pretty early on, Ditko's plotting takes the story into a different place from the many other superhero comics that Marvel were publishing, if we can even call them superhero. Because if you look at the early days of Marvel, traditional superheroes is probably only Thor, maybe Ant-Man and the Wasp, possibly. But the Hulk isn't a traditional superhero story. And the Fantastic Four aren't a typical superhero group. And Spider-Man... Spider-Man had something unique. And a lot of that uniqueness was in the artwork. Nobody did moody, noir, shadows better than Steve Ditko. And you'd think that perhaps that wouldn't suit a Marvel Comics story of that vintage. Certainly, it wasn't an approach he took to his run on the Hulk. The Hulk was not noir moody. Doctor Strange, however, certainly the original origin story of Strange, is very noir. And it seems that this is where Ditko liked to live. He liked to live in the shadows, irrespective of whatever his personal beliefs were. And I, I don't know the man. I never spoke to the man. I've not really read many interviews with the man to get a, an idea on who he was as a person, because he famously eschewed interviews, conventions. He didn't even appear on In Search of Steve Ditko, the BBC documentary hosted by Jonathan Ross. He didn't let the cameras in, even though Jonathan Ross and Neil Gaiman got to meet him. But his command of shadows and light were second to none. And he very quickly took the Spider-Man strip in a different direction. And he made it crime noir. And if you look at those those issues from around issue 9, 10 onwards, Spider-Man is very much Beverly Hills 90210, to use an outdated pop culture reference, meets LA Confidential. That's what the strip is. That's where the excitement comes from. And Ditko's use of, of the crime noir tropes in his stories, gangsters, malls, femme fatales, in the case of, of Princess Python, in the, um, the, the Ringmaster issue, his use of long sedans and trench coats and fedoras and back alley dealings and all of that stuff, normally drenched in shadow or, in some cases, rain, just evoked... A wonderful era that was just so captivating as a young reader. This idea that, you know, you drop Spider-Man into the middle of a Jimmy Cagney film and let's see what happens. Ditko 
obviously brought more than just the noir stylings to the strip. The, the design of the costume is Ditko. It's fair to say it would have been a completely different strip had Jack Kirby, who was offered the gig first, had his version found favour with the powers that be, Stan in this case, then, you know, given Marvel's other success, he would probably still be around today, but I don't know that he'd be successful, or as successful, as the Ditko version. Because it was the Ditko version that spoke to me. I like Roger Stern's version. I think he's probably the second best writer of Spider-Man after Lee and Ditko. And I like the, the growth of the character and the changes that the character goes through. But Ditko made Peter Parker the central character. Quite rare in those days that the central character of your superhero strip that you actually wanted to be crime noir was the secret identity. You know, if you look at the other Marvel comics of the time, the Hulk doesn't have a secret identity, really. No one knows that the Hulk's Bruce Banner, but that's kind of irrelevant to the story. The Fantastic Four don't have secret identities. Everyone knows who they are, unless you read Strange Tales. So, Spider-Man being not only a young kid, but the young kid being the focal point of the strip was unique. You know, the Flash didn't don't devote entire issues to what the hell Barry Allen was up to this week. But the plots of Spider-Man revolve around Peter. They revolve around Peter Parker. And Peter Parker is a fascinating character. I don't know how much of it is Ditko or how much of it is Lee. The thing with a collaboration such as that is you can't really tell where one of the creators starts and the other creators end until those creators start working independently of each other. And you can certainly see a push and a pull between the approaches of Stan and Steve before Ditko ultimately quits the book. But Peter Parker was a very daring character for the time. He was the central protagonist, but capable of making ridiculously stupid mistakes. He was frequently standoffish. He was frequently a bit of a dick. You know, his glee at Flash Thompson being kidnapped by Doctor Doom and this feeling that he can just hold back and do nothing and one of his problems just simply goes away. It's one panel. It's a fleeting thought. But Ditko draws that panel with such a sly grin on Peter's face. And then within a second, you know, reason prevails and Peter realises that, well, no, it's not the way to go, much as I would like it. And a lot of it is sold in the artwork, in the grin that Ditko gives him. Throughout the strip, there are many such panels, moments, scenes that stick out. Um, I've not got the omnibus, my Bible, uh, in front of me, but the end scene of an issue late on where Aunt May's in hospital... And a nurse watches Peter walk away. She closes the blinds on him. Is beautifully rendered by Ditka. Uh, another issue where Spider-Man is seen walking alone on the rooftops. As he walks away from, from the panel, from the view of the reader. From the camera, for want of a better word. Again, gorgeously rendered. And this is all 
Um, he does a panel. Oh, sorry, a panel has just come to mind. The the spectre of Spider Man standing in between Peter and Betty Brant as they walk away from each other, their relationship in tatters. And this is before we even get to Ditko's Spider Man masterpiece, Amazing Spider Man 33. Arguably, maybe not even arguably, probably one of the best drawn comic books in the entire marvel age of comics and i include you know this man this monster in that just the sheer power the emotional drama the tension that ditko puts into those panels were were spider-man's trapped under the machinery as the the water cascades around him about to drown him and the only thing that keeps him going that forces him to carry on is that if he were to die there, then the the life-saving medicine that he has for his Aunt May will die with him, and she'll die as well. And he remembers his Uncle Ben. One of the few times in the early strips they went back to that well. You know, if you, again, go back and read those, those issues that Ditko did, they don't go to the Uncle Ben well a lot, certainly less than they do nowadays. And that means that when it does happen, like in this moment, um, then it really resonates and it really has an impact that Peter is remembering that that mistake he made. There's the classic fight with the Molten Man in the darkness where only the red of Spider-Man's costume can be seen. There's the, the during decision to have Peter graduate high school and the wonderful drawings Ditko does of the people the faces, the anatomy, everyone in a Ditko comic book looked real. A Ditko Spider-Man comic book is an early episode of The X-Files where it was shot in Canada and they weren't using the LA casting couch. They were casting Canadian actors who looked like real people as opposed to the plastic mannequin models of, of LA-based shows. Once Ramita takes over, the show moves to LA. If we're going to carry on with the the X-Files allegory. It's quite hard, ultimately, to really define what Ditko meant to me. His run on Spider-Man is only 40 issues. You know, 38 issues of Amazing Spider-Man, two annuals, and then half a half an issue of Amazing Fantasy 15. But to create something... That, in those 40 and a half issues, has become the gold standard. You know, Spider-Man changed comics in more profound ways than you can really count. I'm not just talking about the idea of making the teen character the the central part of the strip, something Marvel would go back to um, every now and again with characters like Nova and Miles Morales and... Um, the new Ms. Marvel, I think, is only a teenage girl. They would they would do that a lot and try and emulate the success that they had with Spider-Man to, you know, varying degrees of success because you can never really repeat what you've done. But just everything about those 40 and a half issues is remarkable when you think about it, the level of 
cross genre that goes on. It's a soap opera, it's a superhero, it's occasionally science fiction, which doesn't really suit Spider-Man, but it's in there. It's crime noir. And the characterization and the artistic depiction of a, a fluid, constantly moving, constantly chattering Spider-Man as he zips and dives and rolls and swings between bullets, clunking bad guys on the head all the while with a smart-ass comment on his lips. As we, the reader, are aware of the, the heartache that's going on underneath the costume. You know, nobody did it better. It's 50-odd years later at this point. Nobody still has done it better than Lee and Steve Ditko. Steve's, you know, probably not one of those people who would have asked for eulogies based on the, the little I know about him. But he's just got one. But he leaves behind something that changed the medium in which he worked. Now, of course, he's much more than Spider-Man. The Doctor Strange strip was a, a remarkable creation that even Lee admitted was all Ditko. Very little to do with him. Both of these concepts have been made into big-budget movies. Both of these characters are now known to a, a wider audience. He carried on doing everything, really, his own way throughout his life. The guy didn't know the meaning of the word compromise. The guy worked on his own material, did what he wanted, lived how he wanted, until he died. And he probably... He probably would have thought that was the way we should all live. Really? But I think Spider-Man is what he's going to be remembered for. Whether he'd be happy with that is... Something I can't comment on. But I'm happy that he did it. And I think a lot of people are as well. Because he has done what so many of us can only dream about. He's left a permanent footprint in cultural landscape. Not just pop culture. Spider-Man transcends pop culture now. He's part of everyday life. But those 40 and a half issues are the gold standard and will probably never be surpassed. Rest easy, Steve Ditko. Uh, and now we will continue with our regularly scheduled email section that was recorded some time ago. Okay, let's check in the email bag. Our first email tonight is from Gene Hendricks. Here we are, born to be kings, we're the podcasters of the freaky verse. I'd much rather live in a freaky verse, to be honest with you. And uh, I admit to having a soft spot for the original Highlander movie and for the Adrian Paul TV show. The other stuff, eh, not so much. The original movie is a great one-off action flick with a very interesting concept and backstory. The series, as you said, greatly expanded on the film's premise, adding some really interesting lore like The Watchers. Then there's the music. I'm a huge Queen fan and love pretty much everything they've done. A Kind of Magic, though, is one of my go-to albums. Some really good stuff on there. Even the Iron Eagle song they snuck in so it wasn't a Highlander record. 
I can also say that this series led to one of the most interesting adventures I ever had. While on a summer break from uni, my friends Frank and Chris joined me for a road trip to Baltimore, where a Highlander convention was going on. The trip down and the hotel stay were interesting enough, like the pizza we ordered that never arrived, even though the guy on the phone stated, I know where you are, without us even giving him our information. No, the best part was at the convention, where one of the guests was Elizabeth Grayson. The way they worked autograph was by lot numbers, which you were randomly assigned when you checked in. Mine was the lowest of the three of us, and since I didn't really care about signatures, I volunteered to go and get them. As we were waiting for the room to open up, we saw Miss Grayson entering, and Frank yelled out, Elizabeth, I love you! Frank has trouble with impulse control. So as I get to her, I ask for two pictures to be signed, one for Chris and one for Frank. Frank's the one that screamed, I love you, I told her. She smiled and signed the pictures, and went back to my friends. I handed them over and Frank's eyes went wide and I swore I thought he was going to faint. He then grabbed me in a burr hug and once I was released and could breathe again, he showed me the picture that read, Frank, I love you too, Elizabeth Grayson. Gee, oh, that's quite sweet. P.S. It's because of this series that Dust in the Wind makes me tear up every time I hear it. Oh, isn't that when... Um Tessa died. They played Dust in the Wind because it's quite sad that. Thank you, Gene. Gene's on the Hammer Strikes podcast and Blogspot and the Hammer Podcast and the Quantum Cast and Anime Freaks and all of that lovely, lovely stuff. And the Two True Freaks Amazon link gets... He's got that in his email as well. Maybe I should do that just to encourage you all to spend money on us. Next, it's Christopher Franklin has emailed in. Highlanding Sheena Day. Very good. Hello, Andy. Hello, Christopher. I'm way behind on my correspondence to the palace so quickly. Sheena. I know of the character, but that's about it. I was aware of the movie, but don't recall seeing it unless it was an edited TV version. I think I would have remembered the unedited version. I recall seeing ads for the TV show and maybe flipping past it, but this was past the heyday of the syndicated action shows like Hercules and Xena. Someone just forgot to tell these guys. Brand new day. I dropped out of the Spidey titles pre-clone saga and never really turned. As bad as One More Day sounds, I honestly think the sins of the past, or whatever the Osborne Shag's Gwen story was, and the whole inane spider-totem-Peter-gets-his-eyeball-eating crap sounds worse. I still stand by the weak structure that Peter and MJ's marriage was built on. The characters weren't there in the story, but Shooter forced it. But in my mind, Marvel should have made peace with it long ago and just went with it. Thankfully, DC has woken up and Clark and Lois are back together again. With a kid, nonetheless. Oh, and Brand New Day didn't seem all that new to me. Slightly used day, pre-owned day. Yeah, it was like the um, used car lot of Spider-Man stories. Highlander. There should have been only one is my mantra for Highlander. Loved it at a tween, discovering it on video shortly after it made it though. I was in heavy rotation with my friends and although none of us knew it had a cult following, the sequels are all pretty bad with two being the worst no matter what cut, but I will give them points for at least being original with that one as the rest of the films and much of the TV series seems to be just remakes of that first movie. My sister is a huge fan of the franchise, so much that my nephew's middle name is Connor. I recently watched the first film with my son, original international cut with young Rachel scenes, and he really liked it. It still holds up. The Queen soundtrack doesn't hurt, but everything is better with Queen. Great shows, my friend. Keep them coming, Chris. Well, if you keep writing in, Chris, I will keep making shows for you to write into. Seems to be fair enough, doesn't it? Jason Trenner emailed in uh, talking about how Highlander is a crazy franchise that keeps coming back for more. It's quite impressive, actually. It is quite impressive how Highlander just steadfastly refuses to die, I suppose. That is, uh, that's, if one could be called impressive, so be it. Anyway, that's it for this time. Next time, I don't know. Back to not knowing. A couple of shows are half written, but we'll, uh, we'll see how it goes from there. Okay. 
Remember, you can email me on heykidscomics at virginmedia.com if you have anything you want to say about this particular show. Uh, the twotruefreaks.com website has the link where you can click on that. It's, um, according to Gene, it's tinyurl.com ttf-amazon, but there's a link on the webpage. That's probably easier. If you go to that and click on it and buy your crap through Amazon, we get the kickback that allows us to keep making these shows. Uh, the Palace of Western Lights is a proud member of the Two True Freaks podcasting network of shows. Everything's going to be fine, people. Don't worry about it. And I'll see you real soon. Take care. Thank you.